Hi, everybody. This is Jose Formoso. Thank you for listening to the El Progreso podcast. We're excited you're here. I just wanted to note that the following episode was recorded while we were still calling the show the Tequeria podcast, in case you are confused by some of the references inside. Other than that, there should be no content differences. Since we're here, I do want to ask you for a favor. Please follow El Progreso podcast and myself on the social network of your choice. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Pandora, and the other pod networks. It really helps us continue doing the show. Thank you, and see you at El Progreso. From Points of Presence Media, this is Jose Formoso for the Tequeria Podcast. I'm a reporter based in the San Francisco Bay Area. I've covered the tech and culture beats for more than 15 years. Most recently, I've spent time developing a media company with reporter and editor friends of mine, and one of the projects we've worked on is this podcast, developed in partnership with the Tequeria nonprofit community. Tequeria was founded in 2015 by two software engineers, David Silva and Sashi Jane, because they felt ostracized by the lack of diversity in the Silicon Valley tech community. They were the only Latinx people in their own work pods and were desperate to feel a connection to fellow Latinx not just because they felt professionally disadvantaged to move up the work ladder, but because they needed other people to share their unique experiences with. So they started setting up events to find other Latinx, built a Slack software channel for communication, and now, five years later, it's the largest community of Latinx in tech in the world. More than 5,000 people use the Tequeria Slack every month, and there are multiple chapters with their own volunteers around the world. As a Latino person in the media industry, I felt the same sense of displacement as David and Sashi. When I walked into the Wired.com newsroom 13 years ago to work as a product reviewer, I think about 90, maybe 80% of the staff were white males. It's not like I didn't enjoy my time there. They were great people. I learned a ton and I made a lot of good friends. But the situation the presently hasn't changed much since in the media. So when I had the opportunity to create a new media company even if it's a small one, I wanted to focus on underrepresented communities like my own, especially those affected by and connected to the most powerful industry in the world, technology. So our company, Points of Presence Media, ended up partnering with Tequeria to make a show the community could call its own. Now, we've been working a few months on episodes about topics like bootcamp software engineers acclimating to their jobs and how young Latinx executives are given back through scholarship programs. And we expect to start airing them this April on a twice every two week schedule. And then coronavirus happened. Tech workers here in the Bay were among the first to be asked to start to work from home. Some of our own friends got laid off and almost everyone I knew started to get super worried about it. Throughout, the Tequeria community was on fire online. They shared the latest news, tried to convince their boomer parents to stay home and generally stayed in touch during what is already the biggest disruptive force in all of our lives. So my audio producer and business partner, Neil Godbole, and I thought, what the hell, let's just launch this thing. Let's refocus the podcast a bit in order to highlight the voices of people we don't normally get to hear from during this type of disaster, Latinx, their friends and family, how they're using tech to empower those on the front lines of the epidemic, how they are managing to hit deadlines while feeding their babies, physically isolated from the rest of their families, and more. Listen, like all of you, we don't know how long the situation will last. But if this podcast can become even a small resource for people where they can learn about how to deal with it and sometimes maybe even feel better, that'll be enough for us. We want to be useful. And that's what a real community of people can do for you, right? So we'll call up whoever can help us understand what is going on and why, how to deal with it in the best way possible, while also looking for the points of presence connection to tech. I'm a journalist, so I'll always be researching and reporting something new to bring to you. So that's what we're going to do. We will probably sprinkle in some of the already made non-coronavirus episodes to mix things up a bit and ensure we keep it connected to the tech industry while also keeping to the new format that you'll hear in a second. Interviews with an additional layer of narrative slices placed on top to help listeners contextualize information. We might also tell narrative feature type stories if we have time and some funding. The latter should take a bit longer to produce, but we'll give it our best shot. A few additional notes before we get to the interviews. While this podcast features stories primarily from Latinx people, we hope everyone listens to it. We all can learn from each other, and the structural and narrative decisions were made with a general audience in mind. 
Further, I want to clarify what the term Latinx means for those who may not know about it and why we'll be using it sometimes instead of Latino or Latina. Simply, it's a more inclusive way to integrate gender non-conforming people or those who don't specifically see themselves as only one gender. But this is just as important. It will not exclude anyone else. A lot of the style houses inside media organizations like the New York Times still have not followed through on the Latinx designation, but that doesn't mean we should not help blaze a trail. Speaking of blazing, let's get started. So we're here today with Dr. Luis Rubio from UCSF. If you can, can you please just give us a brief background into where you work and, um, and your expertise in terms of infectious diseases? Sure. So I am, uh, as you mentioned, an infectious disease uh, fellow. I'm currently training at University of California at San Francisco. We are a three-hospital system um, sort of training program, as in where we train in an academic sort of a hospital, which is located at Parnassus. Uh, we also train at San Francisco General Hospital, which is the county hospital for the county of San Francisco, and then also uh, we spent some time at the at the VA hospital in San Francisco too. I uh, completed my internal medicine training last last year. Now I am, as I mentioned, my first year of fellowship, where our first year is kind of very heavily geared towards clinical uh, experiences in ID. So we are in the ID consult services at uh, Parnassus, which involves general ID problems, also immunocompromised patients at the general. We kind of handle both of those services or whatever comes in the door. Obviously, our patient population at the general is different from an academic institution, mainly patients who have, you know, come from Underrepresented backgrounds, and you know, have, lack access to healthcare. So there's definitely a different type of infectious disease that we see in this population. And then at the at the VA, we also kind of have a mix of those two type of sort of patient populations. I want to get to the differences between populations because I think that's extremely important in regards to the Bay Area as possibly representative of other underrepresented populations around the country. But before we get to that, I would love for you to explain to me and to our audience, again, what the coronavirus is and what it does to the human body, in particular to the lungs. Absolutely. So, you know, coronaviruses is kind of just a, a broad term for, you know, coronaviridae, which it gets that name because if you look at it under a microscope, it has certain proteins on it that make it look like a corona, which many Latinx uh, folks know what that means. Um, and this virus, it's, it's tropism, or as in what it likes to attach to, is typically the respiratory tract. Um, it can sort of cause gastrointestinal infections too, but clinically what we typically see it cause are respiratory infections. It sort of infects the the lung cells, and then will cause an inflammatory reaction in that area. There are many other coronaviruses that we commonly test for that sort of also provide symptoms like such as the common cold or just lower respiratory tract symptoms that was similar to other coronaviruses um, such as SARS and MERS, which were back in 2013 and 2010 sort of respectively. But what we noticed with these coronaviruses with, for you know very different reasons causes a much severe infection and inflammation, which causes respiratory failure, either through just like a lot of swelling in that area, pretty much just makes it harder for the lung to bring in oxygen into the blood, manifesting as patients feeling short of breath, um, having a very strong cough. And then once you have so much inflammation in your lungs, it causes other organs to fail too. So what we're seeing right now with SARS-CoV-2, which is the sort of official sort of virus name for COVID, is something similar to SARS and MERS, where it causes like a very severe acute respiratory uh, failure sort of uh, presentation to the point where patients are requiring to be intubated and mechanically ventilated. So let's talk briefly about SARS and MERS in relation to COVID-19. As one of my favorite YouTube doctors, Dr. John Campbell, said on a video, these viral respiratory diseases all have different genetics but are related. Two of the principal ways doctors figure out how dangerous they can be are the following. One, by determining how deadly it is once it gets into a body, known as the fatality rate. And two, by figuring out how easily it spreads, which involves concepts such as incubation periods or how it physically presents in people through sickness. 
Sadly, more than 680,000 people have died from coronavirus worldwide in about six months. About 160,000 people in the U.S. so far. That's from more than 17 million who've been infected. Those figures are already way more than the SARS and MERS viruses combined. On the other hand, MERS, short for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, exploded in 2013 and, seven years later, is still around, but isn't as big a problem. That virus infected about 2,500 people officially and killed nearly 900 souls. That means MERS has a scary 35% case fatality rate. Yet, from the point of view of total global deaths, the most important thing clearly is the ease of spread. People with SARS who did not feel or look sick did not, again, did not pass on the symptoms to other people. People without symptoms, the asymptomatic, do pass them on to other people, a feature of both MERS and the current COVID-19. This is a really important thing we are now learning and can't ever forget. A virus can spread more easily when people are out and about with it and don't know it. Those who are sick and feel it and show it usually tend to seek medical help or stay home. For SARS, this meant it was easier to control its spread and it's why it ended in 2003. And it's why MERS is still around and why COVID-19 is super dangerous, even as it only kills, as of now, about 2% of people, according to experts. Back to the interview. What is the current status of the coronavirus pandemic in the U.S.? And how and why is it different in different states? I think we're still, you know, unfortunately very early on in our course. I think kind of using the Bay Area as an example, our very first cases were in early March. That was at least from community spread. We did have some cases early on that were travel related. That's how it first started with the United States. You know, we were screening patients that visited at risk countries. Initially was coming out of Wuhan. And then slowly after that, Iran and Italy kind of became countries at risk of potentially contracting SARS-CoV-2. But really in early March is where everything changed when we knew that it was in the community. And I think everything is kind of like a two-week delay behind. Basically, we saw those early cases, and but really the transmission probably was happening a lot earlier than that, which is why we saw a very dramatic increase after that. A doubling rate of initially five to 10 days was what we were seeing, or at least what China was reporting. And then now that, you know, more people patients are getting the infection, then, you know, it kind of expands exponentially. In different parts of the country, it's very interesting. You know, initially, Seattle was experiencing a big outbreak that they think they were able to address with stay-at-home stay orders, at least from what I've been reading in the news. Similarly, in the Bay Area, I think our mayor was very aggressive in declaring a, a city emergency when the, there were the first cases uh, in San Francisco, which I think did uh, sort of change the trajectory of coronavirus or, or COVID in the, in the Bay Area. Different parts of the country, such as Louisiana and New York, obviously, is, you know, are, are seeing a very different pandemic than we're seeing. Obviously, there are multiple factors that factor into that, you know, population density, um, either sort of like the healthcare system factors as well, I think. And again, I think everything is just like a, a delay. You don't know exactly when, you know, the transmission was first happening. NBC Bay Area's Ian Cole is at the Santa Clara County Health Department with some answers for us. Ian. We're in it together uh, for some time to come. Dr. Sarah Cody led the effort for the Bay Area's shelter in place that started March 17th, the first region in the country to take that dramatic step. Now most states are following similar guidelines. How each state and city handled the crisis early on was highlighted on social media today, specifically between New York City and San Francisco. On March 2nd, Mayor London Breed tweeted, prepare for possible disruption from an outbreak, urging people to make plans for closures. While New York Mayor Bill de Blasio said he's encouraging New Yorkers to go on with their lives and get out on the town despite coronavirus. Today, the total cases per 100,000 people show San Francisco is faring much better. Um, in New York, when, you know, the new Rochelle sort of cluster came out, um, you know, 
the person or contacts of that person were probably transmitting it at a rate that was being undetected that led to this kind of huge increase in, in New York as well. So I think that, that I think there are various factors, you know, population density, acts by the sort of public offices in terms of shutting down businesses, stay-at-home orders, et cetera, probably factors into why we're seeing such different pandemics in different parts of the country. Officials in New Rochelle, a city north of Manhattan, were some of the first in the country to deal with a large influx of coronavirus patients in a sudden outbreak that happened over the course of a few days. The following is a clip from the first main conference where they announced their partnership with the state's medical and governmental leaders. The National Guard, we are told, will be arriving in New Rochelle in order to assist with logistical and operational challenges that are associated uh, with this matter. We expect that will be principally assisting with cleaning, as well as with the delivery of meals uh, to students who may need school lunches and school breakfasts and therefore uh, would be affected by uh, school closings. So we're hearing that people are more at risk depending on their age, also the health of their immune system if it's compromised. There are other complicating factors. Can you please explain why these people are more at risk than others? You know, the immune system is a puzzle. For some patients, specifically immunocompromised patients, you know, there are many ways that one can be immunocompromised. I think we first, we have known for a long time that patients with malignancies or cancers are immunocompromised mainly by due to, you know, their their immune system is just altered in very specific ways that makes it harder for them to fight off infections. We obviously had the HIV epidemic, which attacked a very specific immune cell that made them susceptible to certain infections. And then now in this day and age with many patients getting uh, transplants, either bone marrow transplants, uh, kidney, liver transplants, they are on medications too that lower their immune system to protect their transplanted organ or graft. There are many types of of immunosuppressive medications, some that just decrease the amount of white cells, which are your immune system cells, to reproduce or cycle over. Some of them block the communications that white cells can have amongst each other, um, which, again, lowers the risk of rejection. But obviously, kind of that balance makes you more susceptible for infections, which, for example, for you know tuberculosis or hepatitis B infection and other sort of more atypical infections that, you know, normal, healthy people wouldn't necessarily get um, an infection from because their immune system is able to handle it and use its natural mechanisms to to take care of it. So those patients are certainly more at risk for worse COVID-19 disease because the virus will be able to shed for longer periods of time and cause inflammation and further organ damage. Let's further clarify the importance and definition of shedding in immunosuppressive people a bit. Like Dr. Rubio says, an immunocompromised person has a harder time fighting off infections and other diseases. But a key thing is that if immunocompromised people do get sick, not only are they more likely to get sicker, they can also spread the virus for a longer amount of time. That's because shedding, known as viral shedding, releases new, fully functional molecular cells that have been replicated inside the body of a host, in our case, sick humans. A study published by the Public Library of Science Pathogens Journal in 2013 on the flu virus said that, quote, prolonged shedding of all respiratory viruses is not uncommon in severely immunocompromised patients, and viral nucleic acids have been detected months after infection, unquote. Further, they said shedding can be observed in the immunocompromised, even after they're treated with antivirals. While COVID-19 is not the same as the flu, it is similar, and shows why this is such an important aspect of the crisis. Immunocompromised people are at greater risk, but those of us who are not are still connected, and we can each affect the other. So what kind of illnesses, common illnesses, would people need to look out for that they have that would provide these compromised environments for their body? Is it diabetes, things like that? Diabetes and obesity is the big one. And patients who have asthma or have a history of smoking and have COPD on top of that. And then also patients who have a cardiac disease like heart failure. I think those are the big, big groups of people that need to watch out in terms of to get a worse infection in the future. Yeah, sorry to say to all of our Latinx brothers and sisters who like to smoke cigarettes or ganja or like to vape or like to inhale and exhale any other type of smoky substance. Experts all over the world say that smoking undoubtedly increases the likelihood of a worse coronavirus infection. 
According to a post from UCSF's Director for the Center of Tobacco Research Control and Education, Stanton A. Glantz, smoking is associated with increased development of acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, in people with a risk factor like severe infection, non-pulmonary sepsis, blood infection, or blunt trauma. Not good. Medical research essentially finds smokers are more susceptible to the virus and or a delayed recovery. They've even had nasal scrape studies that found that at the genetic level, smokers are way more likely to be immunocompromised. For those who might say that your life is your own to do what you want with it, no, they found that those who inhale secondhand smoke are also more at risk. Dr. Glantz says 60 different genes have been found to be altered in e-cigarette users' alveolar macrophages two hours after just 20 puffs, including genes involved in inflammation. What are alveolar macrophages? The super important protective cells in your immune system that absorb viral bacteria. So since COVID-19 causes severe infection and, and inflammation, which then causes respiratory failure and makes it harder for the lung to bring in oxygen into the blood, patients feel short of breath, lungs get inflamed, and at that point, other organs start to fail too. And that's the point at which patients need to become intubated and mechanically ventilated. So if you do smoke, and according to the CDC, 13.5% of Latino men and 7% of Latinas do, this might be the best time ever to stop. So we mentioned that people are at higher risk and, and they're in incredibly difficult positions, but people are being asked to stay at home because everybody else is possibly at risk. So can you please explain to me why some healthy people, including many of them young, are suffering debilitating effects because of this virus and landing in the ICUs and sometimes sadly dying, while others seem to just have the mild uh, case of it. They're registering fevers and chills and maybe nothing more. Why is that? Yeah, it's definitely very surprising to see, very, very surprising and sad to see young, healthy individuals being deeply sedated and, and on mechanical ventilation, which is shocking. There are a couple things at play. Whenever I have a patient come into the hospital, and the first thing we say about a patient is like their medical history, since it can be pertinent in one way or than another. But if you don't have that information, you could say they have no past medical history. But in, in reality, it, it could also just be no known medical history. So patients who are young, and this applies to our Latinx population, because there are several patients who just don't have access to healthcare, and they don't necessarily know that they have these underlying conditions such as high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity. We're seeing young people that potentially don't know that they have these underlying medical conditions due to not being able to have access um, to medical care. Good morning to you and welcome to CBS This Morning. Officials warning us about the coronavirus threat are increasingly worried that baby boomers, Anthony Mathis <laughs> and me, and young adults are not listening to their advice. It's a particular problem in Florida where some beaches are still open and college students on break have been slow to recognize the danger. Manuel Bohorkas is in Hollywood, Florida. That's a place where you find a lot of spring breakers and retirees. Manny, hello to you. A young friend of mine said to me yesterday that the government sends conflicting messages that they leave the beaches open and then tell young people not to go. So do you think people are now finally going yeah. to get the message? Here's what I can tell you from reporting on this story this week. Some young people just will not budge and it requires doing something like this, actually shutting down the beaches to get their attention. But this decision does not come lightly in a state where tourism is an $86 billion a year industry. But as an aside, we are seeing people that really, truly don't have any medical history, are young and healthy, and that just goes back towards the mystery of the immune system. They may have underlying immune problem that we can't yet describe or characterize, and for some reason they just have a, a very exaggerated immunologic response to this infection that leads them to have very severe respiratory failure. And that's hard to know by standard medical visits. That is something more at the molecular level that we may not necessarily be able to characterize at this time. So that could be explaining it too. And it also does speak to the virus itself. It is very a, a very virulent pathogen too. So similar to SARS and MERS is I think that that also uh, is at play, too, of why young people are also getting sick. Early in the pandemic, 
there were several instances of young Latinx Americans with COVID-19 symptoms, which shocked communities across the United States. One of them was in Los Angeles, where a 17-year-old young man was eulogized and also used as an example by the city's mayor, Eric Garcetti, to be careful and to pay attention to the growing coronavirus situation. The following is a report from Jorge Miramontes for Telemundo's Al Rojo Vivo. Un joven de 17 años diagnosticado con el COVID-19 fue declarado muerto cinco días después de haber sido ingresado a emergencias. A la familia de este joven, Los Ángeles está llorando con ustedes. Lo siento mucho. El deceso del joven residente de la ciudad de Lancaster puso en alerta a las autoridades ya que su padre dio positivo al coronavirus. Sin embargo, autoridades del hospital comentaron que la muerte podría tener una causa alternativa sin ofrecer mayores detalles. Especialmente los jóvenes que quizás no han entendido que están más protegidos en casa, sepan que esto es serio y todos estamos en riesgo. What are you seeing on the ground? You, you mentioned that you you go between hospitals, you're at the VA, you're the one in San Francisco near the Presidio, right? So yeah, I'm at, um, I'm actually currently at San Francisco General Hospital, so we're actually out in the mission on the ground. We are seeing, surprisingly, a younger population. We are seeing patients in their 40s and 50s coming in, and uh, a big proportion, mainly because of the population this hospital serves, is we are seeing a lot of Latinx, Black or African American communities coming in here, patients who have decreased access um, to healthcare is what we're seeing so far. And similarly, a majority of the patients are experiencing, I don't get a sort of snapshot of what's happening in the community, but there are, there are certainly more cases out in the community than compared in the hospital. And in the hospital, there is a good proportion that are in the ICU and requiring very aggressive ventilation and supportive care, which is really the, the main care that we have for, for these patients. How many would you say, if you are able to say, of the patients that are coming in through the emergency room, people that are underserved that do not have medical insurance? I, I would say a fair number of them, probably up like a, a quarter of patients who don't have health insurance. That seems pretty high, right? When you're bringing in how many, how many dozens and hundreds of people? How many are you seeing like day to day? Day to day, it's been varying and I don't have those exact de details, but I, I would say probably like one in five or so of the new cases. But yeah, given our population, we typically do see patients without insurance at a higher rate than other hospitals. Without violating somebody's privacy, what can you tell me as an example of a case that has been illustrative of the difficulty of what you're dealing with and what you're seeing as people come in? Because from what I'm reading elsewhere is that, as you just mentioned, a lot of people don't have medical insurance, that they're coming in at a later stage of the virus. Can you take me through that and how you as a doctor are dealing with that? How are you dealing with somebody's personal anxiety and their physical loss of what they're dealing with? Broadly, what I can say is this is a, a working class that is coming through our hospital. People who rely on paying their rent and living from paycheck to paycheck and don't necessarily have the resources to be able to take time off work to get checked in when they first develop symptoms and do put off their medical care in and and put their responsibilities first in terms of being family, paying the rent, things of that sort. So it does cause a, a delay in them presenting to the hospital and potentially worse later on, given that they weren't able to seek early attention. Granted, given that we don't necessarily know what will predict a, a bad, severe complication. So while some will be able to just shake it off, others do develop worse disease. It's true that even though Latinx in the U.S. are worried about contacting the coronavirus more than any other group, according to a recent poll by the Pew Research Center, they are still disproportionately more at risk alongside African Americans. In fact, data from New York's Bureau of Communicable Disease Surveillance System early last month found Latinx have the highest death rate from coronavirus in the state at about 34%. They're twice as likely to die in the state from it than white people. While pre-existing health disparities make them more vulnerable, like Dr. Rubio says, their jobs also put them at risk, as those going into work tend to be essential low-income workers, such as grocers and restaurant and agriculture workers, who tend to have little or no paid leave. 
Salud América, a Latin healthcare advocacy organization, says that only 16.2% of Latinx in the U.S. can work from home. That data was corroborated by the nonpartisan Center for Economic and Policy Research. Think about that level of job inequality. It's crazy. Governor Cuomo also mentioned this in one of his press conferences. We're going to do more testing in uh, minority communities, but not just testing for the virus. Let's actually get research and data that can inform us as to why are we having more people in minority communities, more people in certain neighborhoods, why do they have rate, higher rates of infection? I get the comorbidity. I get the underlying illness issue. But what else is at play? Are more public workers Latino and African American who don't have a choice, frankly, but to go out there every day and drive the bus and drive the train and show up for work and wind up subjecting themselves to, in this case, the virus, whereas many other people who had the option just absented themselves. There are other social and economic inequities Latinx face that are being exposed and impacted by the coronavirus that can also affect their health. Latinos, Latinx, tend to have less access to open spaces to social distance. 56.7% pay a third of their income on housing, so they have to go to work to keep a roof over their head. About 16% have food insecurity, meaning they often don't know when the next meal will come. And 19% have no health insurance. 19%. Also, nearly 50% of women and 41% of men over 20 are obese and also have high rates of hypertension and diabetes. And that's just the Latinx story in the U.S. It is bound to get worse elsewhere in the Latin American diaspora. For example, in Venezuela, one of three people lack basic food security. In Colombia, it's estimated that four out of five people live in urban areas that may exacerbate the effects of the pandemic on already maxed out healthcare systems. There are other factors, too, of not wanting to seek access to healthcare, whether it be immigration status, fear of being reported, having people interact with a sort of authoritative institution, especially when it's labeled public health, that definitely causes some anxiety for them wanting to present and obviously comes at a cost to them, right? So in terms of chatting with patients, I mean, and, th and this is not specific to COVID-19. I mean, this is, uh, this is, I, since I trade here in, in San Francisco and I, my primary care clinic was in San Francisco General Hospital too. This was a common conversation I would have with patients telling them that them interfacing with the hospital is not going to put them at risk in dealing with those anxieties. It's just being really highlighted during this pandemic in terms of the decreased access and fear of being reported and the worst outcome fear of being deported too, which is something that's been hard to balance with patients while well, my training here. Our community has been facing a lot and it's really indescribable right now to share uh, a lot of what's going on, you know. And obviously, yes, we're afraid to, to go and get tested and not knowing if immigration agents are going to be there doing their work. So it is very, very hard. That man is a Latin American immigrant speaking to the Associated Press earlier this year. In a video which you can find online and that we will link to on our site transcript, experts and advocacy groups talk about how they fear that fear itself will lead and continue to lead to high coronavirus infectivity rates. Uh, and what I, what I picture uh, that it could happen is that because of that narrative, people won't get tested and we won't be able to control infections. We won't be able to control a bigger, bigger issues. And then he's gonna start using uh, us as the, as, he's gonna put us as responsible for whatever happens in the future. And another worry, going to a hospital if they get sick. Hernandez says he would certainly go, but knows others are worried about immigration and customs enforcement or ICE. I have a lot of friends that have told me they are afraid because when people are at home and ICE comes to the house, they believe that they're going to be arrested. But there's nothing official, nothing concrete. It's rumors. We haven't seen if it's true or if it's false. But I think we have to be careful. ICE does not enter hospitals and has said they will suspend immigration arrests during the pandemic. 
but fear is hard to erase and fear can breed contagion. We've had three years really of very intense fear in our communities and we've been hearing for a long time from providers that people were avoiding clinics and avoiding hospitals. Our message and the message that public health officials and healthcare providers are giving is you are safe. You should go and get treatment. It is safe. Safety everyone must feel because undocumented or not, a virus makes no distinctions. Liz Nieslaus, WGBH News. Speaking of small spaces, we're hearing that some of the ICE detention centers all across the country, which are filled mainly with Latin immigrants in close quarters, are seeing larger numbers of likely infected people. Just a couple of days ago, a reporter from Politico said that he talked to one prisoner that from 24 people in his small jail cell in Jefferson County in Texas. Like a third of them had coughs and shortness of breaths and fevers, which are all symptoms of COVID-19. What do you, I mean, what do you say about the situation when it comes to that and how likely is it that in these jail cell detention environments, it might just go crazy, this virus? Yeah, no, it's, it's it's very concerning. I am definitely worried for these type of settings because of these close quarters and for it to easily transmit to many other sort of people in detention. And, you know, there's been a big push to let people out of these settings. I think in different parts of the country, there is the release of people who are in detention or at least in, in inmates who are incarcerated. I'm not sure if that has occurred for patients in detention centers, but it needs to be addressed in, in some way or at least be able to have the resources to provide care to these patients because, you know, they're at a very high risk of developing this disease and I just cross my fingers that it doesn't get bad enough that they need care in the hospital setting. The immigrant situation inside detention centers is indeed bad and getting worse. The number of COVID-19 cases confirmed by ICE keeps rising, an imprisoned population of more than 37,000, with little or no access to toilet paper, hand soap, or tests. News reports, including those from ProPublica, Democracy Now!, and BuzzFeed News, have spoken to or received access to audio conversation from detainees inside that say that they are, in their words, being terrorized by agents who, when asked for these necessary items, tell them everyone needs to die from something anyway while also not wearing masks or any other sort of protection themselves. ICE has countered that they have sent masks and asked officers and detainees to observe social distancing, even though the latter is logistically impossible in small cells. Immigration lawyers have sued federal courts to release these detainees, arguing that holding undocumented immigrants during a pandemic violates their civil rights. And ICE has started to release some detainees, but fewer than a thousand so far. Then, of course, there are the people not inside jails, but in encampments near the Mexico-U.S. border. Thousands who are waiting for asylum hearings. I'd love for people to know that and really understand why it's so easy to spread. We've had other pandemics in the past. We obviously had H1N1 back in 2009. There was the Ebola epidemic too. And using those two as comparisons, the one that is certainly more infectious is the one that can be more easily spread. And that usually is through respiratory mechanisms. We still don't quite understand exactly how SARS-CoV-2 is transmitted, which is why we're taking precautions as you're as seeing in the news of uh, patients or of medical providers wearing full gowns, eye shields, and then respirators to filter out particles that can be transmitted through a respiratory transmission. Every virus has a different characteristic. In scientific terms, it's called the R-naught, which simply put is how many individuals can one person infect. For example, something like measles, which is incredibly infectious. So r not is a super interesting term and hasn't really been defined clearly by much of the media, even though I've seen it everywhere, as if all people knew their math and science. First, it is written as capital R with a subscript of zero. But the zero is spoken as the written N-O-U-G-H. T, not. A Middle English thousand-year-old variant of N-A-U-G-H-T, as in, will you be hugging your buddies at an Oakland A's baseball game anytime soon? Not. That's a joke. That's a joke. Quarantine, everybody. Anyway, not means zero, 
when it's used in the context of the virus, R0 is the basic reproductive number. So it is critical to understand and predict exponential spread. If it actually reaches zero, then the virus is not being passed on. The lower the R0 is the lower the spread. Remember we talked about how SARS petered out in 2003 earlier. Its reproductive number was less than one because on average, less than one other person is infected, meaning the number of cases will go down. So as more people get tested for COVID-19, the more we'll be able to know the true value of its R0 and its infectivity rates. If you want to know what the R0 number is in specific states in the United States on a rolling basis, the founders of Instagram, including Kevin Systrom, created a website that tracks it at rt.live. The website is rt.live. Send that site along to your tios and tias everywhere, along with this podcast, please. There's other proposed mechanisms that maybe it can be tra uh, transmitted through a fecal-oral route. There has been some studies noting that stool samples have this virus as well, which is another mechanism of transmission, which is why we're promoting hand hygiene and avoiding touching your face. So if you touch a fomite and you, then you touch your mouth or your nose, that's a very easy way of introducing a large inoculum to the respiratory tract to, to cause an infection. Then there's also this theory of, is this airborne? Uh, and what airborne typically means is that as opposed to, say, droplet where somebody sneezes and there's heavy drops of like saliva and secretions that just fall to the ground and stay on the ground or surfaces. Airborne typically means that it can stay floating in the air for a while. And there are some studies that show that it can float around for about three hours. So a combination of all those mechanisms of transmission have, has made this certain virus very infectious. Why are hospitals at risk of filling up? And how can that situation affect people who may need immediate help? It's one of the main reasons why we're hearing that we need to bring down the curve, right? Because all of a sudden, the hospitals are going to be basically impossible to deal with. Can you please explain that? They're certainly at risk because there's not a a dedicated hospital bed for every person in the country. But we're certainly at risk because there's a certain amount of capacity that we can handle in a, and we can only handle a certain percentage of the population. And if everybody is showing up at once, that definitely overwhelms us and our ability to provide care, not only just in bed capacity, but medication capacity, testing capacity in terms of our laboratories and the amount of drugs that we have. There are certain drugs that are on shortage right now that we're dealing with. So, which is why it's better to, rather than have everyone come at once, have them come at different times, as we say, flatten the curve. It may lead to a, a longer time in the pandemic, but it certainly allows the medical system to adapt to its needs. There's a lot of modeling data of like our current cases that will predict how many ICU beds we need. And the best way that we can get help from the public is staying inside to decrease the transmission of infection to more people. As an infectious diseases expert, what has been the most surprising thing to you about this virus? I think its infectivity is probably what's been most surprising in its persistence. The SARS epidemic, the MERS epidemic, it just never really broke out as we're seeing right now. And even with the H1N1, that was a pandemic that did affect several um, countries, but uh, again, didn't cause the severity of disease that we're seeing with SARS-CoV-2. So it's been surprising of the exponential increase of this virus and, and especially across the world and the severity of it too. What's been really surprising too is also its clinical features that, that it causes that has really humbled us at, at times. There will be certain patients that you see that doesn't necessarily clinically fit, or you think that they may have something else. And then sure enough, you, you send a COVID test, which was not a position that we were in a couple weeks ago, where we had a, a huge shortage of tests that made it challenging. But now that we're able to test more, we're able to better describe what it is. Maybe certain patients present with diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, while others kind of present with loss of smell, which is something that's been publicized. So I think it's been surprising to see the different presentations of it too.
you're saying that now it, people are being able to be tested more, but we're hearing that not enough people that want to be tested or that should be tested are getting tested. There's been a lot of reporting, including from the COVID-19 tracking project co-led by one of our Tequeria members, the science journalist Alexis Madrigal, found that it's still way behind considering our population, right? We're huge. Why are people not being tested yet fully? And can you also please explain the specifics of the positive-negative ratio findings when it comes to that? Yeah, we're still behind in testing. We only have enough to test those that are symptomatic and and requiring hospital admission. We are ramping up our outpatient efforts of testing people who are feeling symptoms as an outpatient but not sick enough to come into the hospital. But I would say that we have made progress to at least offer tests to those that are symptomatic. Testing those that are requesting testing, our supply is still stretched a bit to offer the testing to those people. And factors of shortage of tests is also multifactorial. First, there was certainly a delay early on where the CDC first tried to disseminate their testing to different places in public health laboratories, but it looks like there were some technical issues with the initial test, with a, which kind of set us behind. There was obviously more approval processes that needed to be eased to be able to allow laboratories to do their own testing. Many hospitals were interested in developing their own tests, which we were able to do here. And once the testing was able to be done at our institution, it really allowed us to test more people rather than having to depend on sending it to the Department of Public Health and then de- and then sending it out to reference labs uh, or commercial labs, which again takes several days to know so you're in the, in the dark trying to know if this patient is positive or negative. Global National with Donna Friesen. When those on the front lines talk about the importance of testing, they're actually talking about different tests, all of which could be key to reopening the world. The first is the antigen test, processed methodically in a lab. It tells us who is infected right now and could pass it on to others. The antigen test involves poking a long swab deep into the nose to just above the nasopharynx and rotating it. The goal is to collect microscopic material that's recently been in the lungs, which is where the virus is believed to replicate. The swab goes into a vial and is sent to a lab. We know there still aren't enough test kits or labs to test everyone. That's really going to be one of our main strategies to get us out of the mess we're in right now, which is if you can have easy access to a test, even if you've got mild symptoms, if you're positive, then we know to tell you to go home and isolate for 14 days. And we can also tell your contacts to be wary for symptoms. If we can do all that, then we're much more like what uh, South Korea has done from the very beginning, which is a lot of testing and really doing a lot of contact tracing. And they've been able to keep a lid on this pretty much better than almost any other country. There are more rapid tests on the way. Health Canada is analyzing a portable rapid test made by Spartan Bioscience. It uses a throat swab and in a device about the size of a coffee cup, it's said to deliver results in minutes. In the U.S., the FDA has approved a rapid test too made by Abbott Laboratories. It also claims to deliver results in minutes. It's being used by the White House, but there are concerns about accuracy and scaling it up for wider use. The technology is improving too. The the prior testing uh, method that we did beforehand is something called real-time PCR or polymerase chain reaction, which pretty much amplifies the the RNA of the virus and to see if you detect it or not. That's been the main way we've been testing folks. There are newer blood tests coming around, testing antibodies to the virus, which is exciting. And then also a lot more commercial laboratories are putting out their products to get more rapid testing being done, such as some other like Abbott or Cepheid. Those are also sending their tests to, to hospitals. So we should be able to increase our test capacity in the future. And in terms of the positive and negative ratios, the way I like to think of them is sensitivity and specificity. So sensitivity is how sensitive your test is able to say there is a possibility of this test or it's detected. Sensitivity so far for this test, or at least for SARS-CoV-2, has been around what we say 80% or in other terms, 
one out of every five samples could potentially be a false negative. So that's what has been reported in the literature. But good clinical suspicion and sending it on the right people that uh, you can kind of get away from that. But hopefully with serology, we'll be able to have a more sensitive test in, in the future to be able to not miss patients, which is obviously the outcome that you don't want to have when you're testing folks. Unfortunately, at the moment, it's important to say, as Dr. Michael J. Ryan from the World Health Organization did earlier on April 17th, and which is still the case many months later, is that experts can't say with 100% certainty what or what does not work just yet. Not even in regards to potential antibody tests that could show who is already immune to the virus. Number one, we need to be sure that what tests would be used to establish the, the status of an individual. And there's uh, lots of uncertainty around what, su what such a test would be and how effective and how performant that test would need to be. And secondly, a lot of the preliminary information that's coming to us right now would suggest that quite a low proportion of the population have actually seroconverted. So it may not solve the problem. Uh, there's been an expectation maybe that herd immunity may have been achieved and that the majority of people in society may already have developed antibodies. I think the, the general evidence is pointing against that and pointing towards a much lower seroprevalence. So it may not solve the problem that governments are trying to solve. And then thirdly, there are serious ethical issues around the use of, of such an approach. And we need to address it very carefully. Uh, we also need to look at the length of protection that antibodies might give. We're not, nobody is sure whether someone with antibodies is fully protected against having the disease or being exposed again. Plus some of the tests uh, have issues of sensitivity. They may give a false negative result and we may actually have someone who believes they're zero positive and protected actually in a situation where they may be exposed and in fact they are susceptible to the disease. We are seeing supporters from the far right saying that the United States should continue to build the wall because immigrants from Latin America could carry the virus with them and make the situation in the U.S. worse. Is that at all possibly true? I would say no. <laughs> Just watching the facts of how this spread, we are a very globalized world. And I, I don't think that placing this on immigrants of Latin America for it getting this bad is a factual statement. We can see the timeline of how this uh, disease spread that would contradict that theory. Which basically came from people flying over borders, right? Exactly. And more through travel association and the connections of the world that we have built to help this world run. Globalization is probably what led the, the virus to, to spread, not, not immigrants. People that having a hard time um, even getting to the hospital, maybe because they don't have medical insurance. So what can you say to uh, people that might be listening to this podcast about whether they are worried about getting a test? Do you need to have insurance to get a test? Are there places where people can take free tests? My understanding is that given that this is a state of a emergency, that anybody requesting a, a test will have the fee <laughs> waived, is, is my understanding, either covered by their insurance or through other mechanisms. So my understanding is that the test should not come to a cost to the patient. So we're hearing that there's a rapid vaccine development already in the trial phase. And experts like you say that it might be more than a year or up to 18 months to get one. And then who knows how long from then it will take to actually distribute it around the world. So antiviral medication treatment might be the most important thing that happens in the next few months. That it will be the thing that if people go into the hospital or get sick, that there will be better outcomes with antiviral med. So what works now in terms of medication? And what doesn't? Well, I would be lying to you to say that something effectively works against this. We are really trying hard to find an antiviral medication for this. We're mainly going off of a lot of medications that we know of already that have antiviral activity. 
and are actively investigating it right now. You know, I, I think right now it's great that there's a lot of research going into this and there's a lot of literature coming out. But unfortunately, in different times, a lot of these papers would be really be looked under the microscope to see if their conclusions are um, correct. But just getting information out to the world is the appropriate move right now, given of how quick this uh, pandemic has developed. So there's antiviral medications, one of which called remdesivir, that is in a clinical trial right now that seems to show some promise, mainly showing it has antiviral activity. Whether it can help treat disease is up for debate still. And there's some really another places that are um, really struggling. They're really going from using old treatments such as just using steroids, which decreases inflammation, to newer state-of-the-art medications that block signaling of the immune system to decrease inflammation or other things that are people are using too. So there's no sort of proven treatment at this time, but we, we are very much in the sort of gathering information to see what works and what doesn't work. And that that will be the best way to know what works is through what we call randomized control trials, where you're blinded to know what you're giving the patient and seeing how they do afterwards after the uh, treatment is done. So we're still searching for that antiviral medication that will help people get better. The biggest part is staying at home in terms of reducing the transmission of this virus. I am optimistic, um, cautiously optimistic about what's going on in the Bay Area in terms of our hospital system hasn't been uh, overwhelmed at this point. Dr. Rubio, what is the last thing you want to say to the Latinx community listening to this conversation about the importance of coronavirus and about what they should do? I want to continue encouraging people to staying at home, practicing good hygiene, washing their hands and, and not touching their face and practicing social, or at least what I should say, physical distancing, because we should remain social as a society to help us get through this. In terms of the Latinx community, what I would say in addition to what I've mentioned right now is if you're in need of medical care to really take care of themselves and not be afraid of going to the hospital for care. It, this is the hospital setting is, is not a place where where ICE can have the ability to sort of track hospitals can protect patients from from ICE and we have mechanisms to, to do that. So I would encourage people that if they don't have insurance to try to trust the medical system as best as they can to to seek care because healthcare is a human right and they should be able to present to a hospital and get the care that they deserve. California Governor Gavin Newsom exemplified Dr. Rubio's belief for universal health care statewide by passing the first legislation in the country to pay for a portion of immigrants' health care. Listen to this. And regardless of your status, documented or undocumented, uh, there are people in need. And this is a state that steps up always to support those in need, regardless of status. Ten percent, ten percent of California's workforce is undocumented. Ten percent. Any overrepresentation of that workforce is undocumented in the areas that are so essential to meeting the needs of tens of millions of Californians today in the healthcare sector, in the agriculture and food sector, in the manufacturing and logistics sector, and in the construction sector. There's an over representation of people uh, without documentation. By the way, paying just last year over $2.5 billion of local and state taxes. Those are individuals that do not benefit from the PUA program, don't benefit from the UI, the Unemployment Insurance Benefit Program, don't benefit from the stimulus that was just signed by the president, the $2.2 trillion. Yet many in mixed status families are having a hard time taking care of their children and taking care of you and your loved ones. I also wanted to ask you, how are you doing in the middle of all of this? Are you mentally and physically healthy? Well, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm healthy. So <laughs> thank you for a asking it. Mental health wise, it, it is, I am in sort of shock in terms of what I'm seeing develop. And as everyone is, I think we all are thinking of everybody in New York City right now. It's uh, completely different than what it is here. And I do have co-residents that I trained with that are out in, in New York and they're really struggling. And 
I do have a sense of wishing I could be there with them and help them out. I know that my job is here in San Francisco, but there is a feeling of, you know, wanting to to help as, as best as I can, seeing from what I'm reading in the news and talking with a lot of friends and their experiences in different places in the country, sharing information. What's been really great is that the medical community has been very collegial and sharing information of what we're doing in our institution. This is what we're seeing and educating everybody. This has kind of really been the positive side of people coming together to battle this situation that we haven't found ourselves in. And uh, to train at a time like this has also has been uh, very interesting for, for me as well, and uh, which is very fortunate of for, but obviously I'm hoping that there can be as little damage as possible. Doctor, thank you for being on with us and please keep us up to date. Great, thank you so much. So that's the end of the first part of the first episode of the Tequeria podcast. Surprise! For transparency's sake, I can tell you that originally the premiere episode was supposed to be one big conversation with our three guests, but as we produced and added reporting and related news clips, it just got too long. Since we've been trying to figure out what works best for you, the listener, and for the types of conversations and stories we want to bring you, this episode became a bit of a proof of concept. So instead of offering you a full meal with the appetizers, the enchilada entree, and the heavy postre dessert, we're splitting it up. We think the episode works better as a two-parter anyway with the more serious combo with Dr. Rubio now leading to the second part that's a little bit lighter. Starting with episode two, though, we will have one main guest that runs through the length of the storyline, kind of like the Colombian racing legend Yolanda Caballero. Look her up. And by the way, if anyone at the Tequeria community knows her, please give me her email. I'm sure she has great stories and will feature her on the podcast. Most episodes will run about an hour, give or take a rambling but still smartly thought out digression on my part. So if you want to know about Naya Sarate and her Department of Defense funded technology or are piqued by the insane story of Ivan Rodriguez, Mr. Cumbia, who really is the Cumbia meme lord 2020 deserves, please click out of this pod and into part two. See you there.